The bow of God's wrath is bent, and the arrow is made ready on the string, and justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow, and it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God, without any promise or obligations at all, that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood." This comes from one of the most famous sermons ever preached, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, preached by Jonathan Edwards in 1741. It was a sermon that he preached multiple times in multiple places. The language he uses strikes us for how vivid it is and how straight to the point that he is. Edwards held nothing back. Now, Edwards' words are unnerving, and we might dismiss them. You might have been like me and were assigned to read Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God in a high school English class, given as an assignment as Exhibit A for the unfortunate uh, and manipulative Christian heritage of American history. But a place I would have regarded Edward's sermon in the same vein as maybe a high school English class does was one place where he preached the sermon. Enfield, Connecticut. While God was moving throughout the territory of New England, drawing many sinners to himself through his son, Jesus Christ, the city of Enfield resisted. They weren't ready for Edwards' subject. They weren't serious about it. They weren't even ready to pay a polite amount of attention to Jonathan Edwards when he came to preach. But when he did come to preach and preach this sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He couldn't finish it. It wasn't because the people there started rioting. It's because they started weeping. It was so much weeping that Edward stopped, and the pastors of that church prayed with the people, many coming to Christ that day. We might discard Edward's preaching on hell as over the top, The imagery is unnerving, yes. But what's even more unnerving is that if this is true and we keep silent, what's even more unnerving is if we fear the negative opinion of people more than the same people suffering under God's judgment for eternity. Among the most familiar places in the Bible where we see God's judgment come to the fore is the ten plagues in Egypt, spanning from uh, Exodus chapter 7 through chapter 12, verse 32. We'll see here the true nature of God's judgments as we're dwelling on the ten plagues. The true nature of God's judgment, that it is good and it is right and that we must preach about this. If history teaches us anything, even if the Bible teaches us anything, It's that the first truth about God to be denied is his judgment. Go back to the garden, friends. Among the lies that the serpent told Eve is that you shall not surely die if you eat this fruit. Lying about the truth of God's judgment is the oldest lie there is in the book. So, by the end of our time, it's my goal that we'll see God's judgment as good, 
and we'll see his grace shine more brightly in light of it. So before we jump into the 10 plagues, I want to get up to speed with where we've been so far in the book of Exodus. We've been there. uh, This is our third week uh, in the book of Exodus. We remember that the Israelites wound up in Egypt some 400 years prior. God raised up Joseph so that Joseph's family would have food and fertile land. So it was in Egypt that the Lord began to fulfill his promise that he made to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12, that his seed would multiply and be fruitful. But in Egypt, storm clouds arose on the horizon when a new pharaoh rose up who was threatened by the ever-increasing Israelites and came to put them under slavery. So the Israelites groaned under dark days of slavery. They groaned under systemic genocide. And they groaned under worsening burdens of labor. But amid those dark days, amid the dark days in Egypt for Israel, there emerged a great light. God rose up Moses. God heard their prayers. God revealed himself in a mighty way. And God made promises to them. And that brings us to where we are today. Exodus chapter 7. And we're going to read the first seven verses. So let's turn in the Bible to there. Exodus chapter 7. Find it on page 49 in the Pew Bible. And we'll see here, uh, it's a preface to the section that we'll tackle this morning. It lays out uh, what God is about to do, and it introduces themes that run throughout the entire section. I'm going to read the first seven verses of Exodus 7. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command. And your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the lands of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I stretch out my hand against Egypt, and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old, and Aaron 83 years old, when they spoke to Pharaoh. I want you to keep your Bibles open as you'll need to, as we'll glance through this passage as a whole. So as we said earlier, what comes to the front of this passage of Scripture that covers the ten plagues What comes to the front is God's judgment. You can see it even in the part that we read in verse 4, that phrase at the end of verse 4, great acts of judgment. This is what the plagues are, acts of God's judgment. And so we continue after this uh, portion, verses 1 to 7. Just continue covering these chapters at a glance. We see first, verses 8 to 13. Just a sample demonstration of God's superiority. Here, Aaron's staff that's turned into a serpent eats the magicians, uh, the magicians of Egypt, their staff that turns into serpent. God's superior over Egypt. And then we enter into the time of plagues. So this spans all the way through the rest of the passage until chapter 11 when we're warned of the last plague. 
So each plague is told in a similar way, not always in an identical way. Normally, God sends Moses and Aaron to Pharaoh, warns them of what will happen if he does not let the people of Israel go. The plague takes place. Sometimes the magicians of Egypt attempt to replicate it. And then Pharaoh responds in some way. His response varies, but often it leads to him pleading with Moses for this to stop. So Moses prays, God ends the plague, and yet Pharaoh still doesn't let them go. That's the same pattern time and time again as we go throughout these plagues. These are great acts of judgment. So for our time together, we want to consider something of God's judgment as a whole. Mainly from this passage, draw from other passages in the Bible as well. We'll run through three points of God's judgment. The nature of it, the deliverance from it, and the response to it. The nature of God's judgment, the deliverance from God's judgment, and the response to God's judgment. So if you can condense this sermon into one sentence, I'd like to do this every week, something to take home, one thing to take home. It's this, God's judgment is perfect. And it leaves us with the choice, either to revile against him or hide ourselves in him. But God's judgment is perfect and it leaves us with the choice either to revile against him or to hide ourselves in him. So first point, the nature of God's judgment. I wonder what you think of when you hear that word, judgment. Many people would associate judgment with something cold, harsh, stuffy. Many associate judgment with punishment. Others associate it with people who judge too much, perhaps leaving a bad taste in their mouths because those people judge others by a standard that they don't judge themselves. Others still might think of Judgment Day when they hear the word judgment. Not like Terminator 2, Judgment Day, but in the minds of many, just this antiquated form of a a massive reckoning, which is not very vogue in a world where right and wrong is all relative. Friends, in a fallen world where there's sin, where there's injustice, judgment is necessary and judgment is inescapable. It's everywhere. Even in the judgment-free zone at Dean's favorite place, Planet Fitness. You can't escape judgment because you have to make judgments in order to determine whether or not something is a judgment. And then you are judging the person who is making those judgments. It's just inescapable. So what we'll see even more clearly soon is that in a world full of sin and injustice, what we need is not an absence of judgment. We need a presence of good and right judgment. So many regard God's judgment as the most unappealing and unreasonable part of Christianity. Today we want to see that that's not the case. That's not the case. We want to dispel any misconceptions about the nature of God's judgment. Instead, we want to see it for what it's presented, how it's presented to us. So even from Exodus 7, the ten plagues, we just see several truths about God's judgment here. I think the first is that this is a settled judgment. God's judgment is settled. 
It's his settled response to sin. This means it's not whimsical. It's not arbitrary. It's not random. From the start, God's judgment being settled, we see already that God is different than us. When we are wronged, how easy is it for, to be inconsistent and impulsive? Go ahead and ask any kid here. Kids have an airtight memory if their parents treated their siblings differently when they did the same thing that they did. God's stance against sin has been settled from the beginning. And as our creator, he exercises his right to judge his creatures. So you can go back throughout the book of Exodus and throughout the book of Genesis and see God's consistent and settled stance against sin. You read of it in Adam and Eve, Cain, Noah, and Noah's generation, Noah's sons, and all the way down the line. His stance against sin is settled. God never wonders about how to respond or how to think about wrongdoing, which means we don't have to guess of what he thinks about it. We see the same truth here in Exodus 7. God's response to sin, it's not speculative. He doesn't say, you know, I don't really know what I should do about this, these Egyptian guys. I don't really know what I should do about Pharaoh. I don't really know what I should do about these people who've, hold, who've held my people in slavery and have killed thousands of people. Now he knows exactly how he responds. His response is settled. It's certain. He will judge Egypt. We want to see God's judgment as it's presented to us. The nature of God's judgment that we find in the ten plagues is not only a settled judgment, but it's also one that brings God glory. It brings God glory. So what will be the end result of God's judgment in Egypt? What will be the end result? Probably answered in a lot of different ways. Look at chapter 7, verse 5. It's very key to understanding the ten plagues. Very key. He says, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Through his acts of judgment, God shows that he rules over all creation. There are some that maintain that the plagues are simply acts of extreme natural occurrences. Friends, that's not the case. Given the timing, given the scale of these events, the only satisfying explanation is that this comes from the hand of God. Even the magicians recognize this in Egypt, that this is the finger of God. So through his acts of judgment, God makes it clear that he is God and there is no other. It brings glory to himself. So this is like a string a loose string that you find on your shirt that you pull and it just keeps on coming out and then like your whole sleeve is raveled up. <laughs> when you pull on this string of God's judgment, bringing him glory, it's throughout all the 10 plagues. So just take, on, take a tour with me. The first plague, turning the Nile River into blood. God says in chapter 7, verse 17, says something in a similar vein. By this, you shall know that I am the Lord. Before the second plague, the frogs, 
chapter 8, verse 10. Moses told Pharaoh, so that you may know there is no one like the Lord our God. Chapter 8, verse 22, before the flies, God says this, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. And I think the point comes out most clearly in chapter 9, verses 15 to 16, before the massive hailstorm. He says this, For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. God could have freed his people with one plague. God could have freed his people with one word. But the ten plagues are a massive demonstration of his unique power. Think of the difference between a single elimination tournament and a tournament based on series. So sports people in here, the NCAA basketball tournament versus the NBA playoffs. There are upsets throughout the NCAA tournament because it's single elimination. An underdog can win one game on a fluke. But the NBA playoffs is a best of seven series. The team that's first to win four games wins. That means the best team always wins. There have been no upsets so far in the NBA playoffs this year. It's actually pretty frustrating. So in the plagues, it's not a single elimination game. It's a series, and it's a shutout. God decisively shows that he alone is God. So many have pointed out how the plagues undermine and delegitimize the false gods of Egypt. This reflects what God says in chapter 12, verse 12, where he says, On all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. So we can go through each of the plagues and show how this is the case. But just to give one example, the Egyptian fertility god, Happy, I think that's how you say it, was closely associated with the Nile River, and the Nile River itself was considered a god. Because without the Nile, there was no fertility in Egypt. Without the Nile, simply there was no Egypt. That's how much they depended on it. So by turning the Nile River into blood, God shows that it's not the Nile who rules and gives life. No, God rules over the Nile, and God is the one who gives life. So in the plagues, God goes toe-to-toe with all that the Egyptians worshipped and relied on that was not him, and showed that all those things could not save them. His judgment brings him glory. He is God, and there is no other. So we also say, God's judgment's not just settled. God's judgment not only brings him glory. You read through these. We say God's judgment is terrifying. God's judgment is terrifying. Familiarity with this story, it might cause us to rush past this. You could just imagine blood coming out of all your faucets at your home. And imagine this room full of frogs. 
Imagine this room full of gnats, full of flies, full of locusts, to the point where we can't even see through it. We could barely walk through it. Imagine going out of this place and literally everywhere you went and you could not escape the stench of rotting carcass. Imagine your home crushed by massive amounts of hail. Imagine three days of a kind of darkness that it says here could be felt. Darkness you could feel. Darkness where you hold your hand right up to your face and you can't see it. Even Pharaoh's henchmen recognized the terrifying nature of God's judgment. You notice what they tell Pharaoh in chapter 10, verse 7. They ask him there, do you not recognize that Egypt is ruined? Romans 1 speaks of how we were made to live for God and in obedience to him. But we have exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped created things rather than the creator. When that happens, we are ruined, just as it happens here. When we reject God, we are undone. We're not living for what we were designed for. It'd be something like treating your computer as a cup that could hold water. You can try it, but when it happens, it will melt down. It's not what it was designed for. We were made for the Lord, and the terrifying meltdown of Egypt is a picture of our meltdown that happens when under God's judgment. So just a couple of more things about the nature of God's judgment. We just want to see this clearly. We want to see it for how it's presented to us here. We see here that God's judgment is terrifying. But we cannot say here that God's judgment is cruel. No. His judgment is perfect and righteous. His judgment is perfect and righteous. Look at chapter 8, verse 23. For the plague of the flies. God says, Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. That pattern continues. Chapter 9, verse 4, chapter 9, verse 26, 10, 23, and 12, 12 to 13. Distinction between God's people and Egypt. Now we can nuance this some and say that God's people experienced the effects of the plagues alongside God's judgment of a fallen world. He didn't make this distinction right away. But the end of the matter is, as far as God's judgment goes, it is perfect and that he judges those who deserve it. He judges those who deserve it. I'm going to quote Romans again, this time from chapter 2, where it says, Because of your hard and impotent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself, on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Here's the key, Romans 2, verse 6. He will render each one according to his works. This is not miscalculated. This is not capricious. It's deserving, and it is right. So this passage proves God's judgment is perfect because he makes a distinction. God's judgment is perfect because he judges only those who deserve it. But more than that, God's judgment is not cruel because it comes with a warning. 
it comes with a warning. We've seen already that whether it was Moses, whether it was Aaron, whether it was Pharaoh's magicians, whether it was Pharaoh's servants, he had people all around him who told him before, during, and after the plagues of what he should do to get out of God's judgment. Warning time and time again. We'll see more about Pharaoh's response later. So friends, here's the nature of God's judgment. Just taking it all in from this passage. From the plagues, we see God's judgment is settled. It brings him glory. It's terrifying. It's perfect and righteous. And it comes with a warning. So on the whole, we say God's judgment is good. It is good that God judges sin. If there's a takeaway from, this, from the nature of God's judgment, it's that. God's judgment is good. Imagine if God did not judge sin. If God did not judge sin, that would mean either he delighted in it or he didn't care about it at all. No, that's not the case. The God who is here in Exodus is the same God of whom it is said, there is no darkness in him at all. This is not a dark side of God. This is not an unfortunate part of him. It is a good part of him. So, for instance, God judges sin. That means that all of our cries, along with the psalmist, when we cry out, How long, O Lord? And we see the injustices of the world, when we see the wrongs that go unaddressed, and we cry out, How long, O Lord? Because God judges sin we can have confidence that those wrongs will be answered and will be addressed one day. That's why God's judgment is good news. Because God is angry enough at sin to stop its damage and to right what it has wronged. Here then is the good nature of God's judgment. I see your point, you might, you might say. But hasn't God mellowed out since then? You know, Jesus, the second part of the Bible, more about peace. Well, maybe none of you here are thinking that. But just to be sure, we have to say that the nature of God's judgment has not changed. The nature of God's judgment has not changed. Just double back through what we've covered. That God's stance against sin is settled. Listen to Jesus' words in John 3, 36. He says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. It's still there. Double back through. God judges sin for the sake of his glory, to make his name known. Listen to Jesus speaking of that same purpose of judgment in John chapter 5. He says, the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Why? That all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father, for his glory. Jesus spoke of the terrifying nature of God's judgment. Jesus spoke of hell more than anyone else in the Bible. Matthew 13 he says, the Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. God's judgment is perfect and righteous. 
we read earlier from Romans 2, of how God judges everyone according to his deeds. We continue in that chapter, and we read of how God has no partiality, that nothing clouds him, nothing compromises his judgment. It is perfect, and it is righteous. We see in the place that God warns of his judgments. And how many times in the New Testament are we warned that Christ is returning? How many times does that warning come from Jesus himself? I think of the famous one from Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. The nature of God's judgment remains the same from the Old Testament to the New Testament to all of eternity. And the New Testament describes that as a result of God's judgment, all things are made new. All things are worked together for good. And all the old things have passed away. So that means the New Testament says that at the end of the matter, we will look at God's judgment and say, it is good. With all the wrongs in the world, all the wrongs in the world. I don't know how God exactly will fulfill that promise. With all the bad things that there are. But if there's anyone I trust to do that, to right every wrong, it's the one who's pictured here, who has all resources at his disposal who is sovereign over all things. If there's anyone I trust to make all things right, it's the one in whom there is no darkness at all. If there's anyone I trust to make all things right, it's the one who made a way to deliver people from his judgment and made that way at infinite cost to himself. And that's the second point. Deliverance from God's judgment. Deliverance from God's judgment. We purposely have dealt only with the first nine plagues. The final plague is treated far more extensively than the previous nine, and for good reason. Chapter 11 is a warning of what's to come. The death of the firstborn. After this plague, God said that Pharaoh would let the Israelites go, finally. So in between promising this plague and bringing it about, God gives the Israelites instructions. So let's pick up the passage there, chapter 12. We'll read verses 1 to 13. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. You shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. 
Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in that land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. The final plague is the plague of death. As the Bible confirms elsewhere, this is where the judgment of sin leads. We know, most of us know that famous uh, verse. The wages of sin is death. God will display again that what the Egyptians worshipped and relied on could not deliver them from him and could not deliver them from death. And on the other hand, God will display to the Israelites by giving them these instructions. He'll display to them that deliverance from his judgment and deliverance from death comes only from him and not themselves. So if you scan down the rest of chapter 12, you'll see that Moses then relayed these instructions to the elders of Israel, which includes, like we read, the manner in which they eat, different feasts that were inaugurated at this time. Then the people obeyed these instructions in verse 28. And finally, the plague comes in verses 29 to 32. The firstborn in every Egyptian household dies. And we've taken time to consider the nature of God's judgments, and we've wanted to prove that God's judgment is good. But this doesn't mean it's easy to read. When we read of something like this, the final plague, it's hard. Just because God's judgment is good, it doesn't mean that, it, that we shouldn't wrestle with it. And when we read of individual households discovering death inside of them, it should make us uneasy, uncomfortable. But we need to take in the whole story. We need to do that. We need to take in that God made a way for people to be delivered from his judgment. So I want us to notice for a moment how God did this, how God made a way for his people to be delivered. So God told the Israelites to take blood from the lamb and place it on the doorposts of their homes. He says, I shall see the blood and pass over you. So just to realize the logic behind this instruction. Everyone needed it. All the Israelites needed these instructions. They weren't optional. It wasn't if, as if they wandered into the department store known as Egypt. And God found them looking around. And God said, hey, there's this really bad things coming. Do, do you need help finding anything? To which the Israelites then replied, you know what? That's great. I think we're, we'll be okay. Thanks anyway. No. God doesn't treat it like that. Neither 
was it as if God went around to households targeting the ones that really looked like they needed some help to be delivered from this. You know, the households where there's a complete family, where the husband and the wife are both professionals, where there's 2.5 kids, where there's a picket fence, where there's regular vacations, a healthy 401k, they're all set. And you don't really need to bother with them. No. Each house needed this. It was not optional. If there was blood, if there was no blood on their doorposts, they would have been in the same spot as the Egyptian households. Why? Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Because when we are placed under God's judgment, all stand guilty. So friends, you can like the idea of God's judgment. You can think that it is good for him to do it. You can have hope that one day evil will be no more and that wrongs will be made right. But you misunderstand God's judgment if you think it does not include you. There was not a household that did not need God's provision to be delivered from his judgment. But we ask, just reading what we read here, why did God provide in the first place? Why did God give these instructions at all to be delivered? Did God see something in Israel that he didn't see in the Egyptians? Was it because the Israelites had tried just really, really hard so God finally threw them a bone and brought them up to the rest? No. God delivered them entirely out of grace. It was unearned. You can keep your finger here in Exodus. You can flip to Romans 9. Romans 9, we'll pick up in verses 14 to 18. We're going to notice here, God delivered completely out of grace, not because of anything in Israel. Romans 9, verses 14 to 18. It's on page 945. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. If God has justice, everyone will be condemned. He is not obligated to have mercy, but he does anyway. And this should make us supremely humble and to give all glory to God. So here, friends, is deliverance from God's judgment. And we see that Israel needed to be saved. This was not optional. Everyone needed this. We see here God chose to give them deliverance only out of his grace, not because they deserved it. But we also see here that Israel was saved through a substitute. They're saved through a substitute. So the morning after this final plague, there would be a corpse in every house in Egypt, both Israel and the Egyptians. The question was whether or not that corpse would be that of a lamb or that 
of a person. The lamb went as a substitute for a person. The deliverance from God's judgment here is just wanting. It is begging. It is wishing us to speak of Jesus. There is a plague that would come that was greater than any of these ten. There was a plague that would come that was the death of a son, but this was a son of infinite value. There was a plague that would come through which God would pour out all of his judgment of his wrath against sin. And that greatest plague to ever take place was the cross of Jesus Christ, where the only begotten Son of God died as a substitute for sinners. At his cross, the wrath of God against sin and the love of God to deliver sinners from his judgment meet. It's no wonder why the Apostle Paul calls Christ our Passover lamb in 2 Corinthians 5, 7. Just as there was one lamb for each Israelite household, so there is one perfect spotless lamb for the entire household of God. We read of that in 1 Peter 1, verses 18 to 19. And like the Israelites, everyone needs this provision. Everyone needs Christ. Without Christ, our Passover lamb, we will face God's judgment on our own. And when we go to punch in our time clock with the Lord and receive our wages from him, those wages will be death. But God, who is rich in mercy, chose to save us, not because of anything in us, not because of anything special that he saw, but just because of the riches of his glorious grace. Now it is Jesus' blood, not our own, that causes God to pass over us when he comes to judge us. So as we close, point number three, we ask, what do we do in light of this? It's the response to God's judgment. It's our third point. The responses to God's judgment seen in these chapters show us that there are ultimately only two ways to live. The first way is that of Pharaoh. I wonder, friends, do you think Pharaoh was an atheist? No. It was. He was far from it, actually. Pharaoh's issue was that of a different color. You flip back a little bit uh, further back to uh, Exodus 5, verse 1. Exodus 5, verse 1. Here the boys show up to Pharaoh, more like the geezers, actually, who says God can't use 80-year-olds. Right? This is how old Moses and Aaron are. And they tell Pharaoh, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, let my people go. And how does Pharaoh respond? Verse 2. He says this, I don't believe in God. I grew up believing, but not anymore. Now, my Bible doesn't say that either. Instead, what Pharaoh says, who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. In other words, I'm going to listen to your God? Your God's a loser. Why would I obey the God of slaves? 
Who is your God compared to me? I rule over the people of your God. So the heart of all rejection against God is shaking our fists against him, saying he has no right over us. We only have rights over us. It's saying that God is not the one who determines how I live. I am. This prideful, stubborn rejection, whatever shape it might take, like Pharaoh, it will lead us down a path of fake repentance, only out of self-interest. Even Moses recognized that. Chapter 9, verse 30, he still says, I know you don't yet fear the Lord. You see, Pharaoh attempted to negotiate with Moses only when hard times came. So friends, even Christian brothers and sisters, beware when you only want to change when you are under duress. Real repentance does not just want relief. Real repentance wants reconciliation with God. Real repentance means we are willing to forsake sin no matter the consequences. Pharaoh went down a path of fake repentance. He dismissed reason, his officials begging him to deliver these people and to realize the destructive consequences of his action. And Pharaoh rejected the only hope he had for deliverance. And that's the tragic irony of rejecting God, is God is your only hope against the judgment of God. So we should address something in this passage about Pharaoh's heart. If you notice, if you read in advance, you even saw at the beginning, it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now, some will point out that God didn't do this until Pharaoh uh, did it first. But you go back to chapter 7, verse 3. You go back even further to chapter 4, verse 21. And God announced ahead of time that he would harden Pharaoh's heart. So we have to recognize that God did this to make himself known, to show his character, bring glory to himself, that same purpose that we noticed earlier. But we also have to recognize and hold intention that Pharaoh is responsible for his actions. Both are true. So in a way, the same works for how we might explain the hailstorm that came in chapter 9. We can explain it in two ways that are true. The ultimate cause was God. Chapter 9, verse 18, God says, At this time tomorrow, I will send the worst hailstorm that has ever fallen on Egypt. At the same time, we could say that the hailstorm was caused as moist air rose and froze, that ice formed and increased in size, and more water vapor froze around it, and it became too heavy to be sustained by the wind, and it fell to the ground. Both causes are true. Neither eliminates the other. God is the ultimate cause, but he is not to blame for the evil desires of Pharaoh. It's, it, it is, there is a mystery to it. But God remains just. A good passage to contemplate on is just Romans 9 again. Romans 9, verses 14 through 23. Well, friends, we should wrap up. Are you on the path of Pharaoh? You might say, well, I don't worship rivers. And I don't worship fertility gods. I'm actually in a church building right now. That doesn't mean, friend, you are still not worshiping idols. 
an idol is anything besides God to which you give ultimate allegiance and that promises you ultimate deliverance, security, and fulfillment. I'll repeat that. An idol is anything besides God to which you give ultimate allegiance and that promises you ultimate deliverance, security, and fulfillment. When you see idols in this way, there are idols everywhere. Count it God's mercy to you that you are here this morning. Count it God's love that in something like the plagues, he exposes everything that we trust that's besides him and shows us that it can't satisfy us, shows us that it can't fulfill us, and shows us more, most importantly, it can't deliver us. It's a lie we tell ourselves. Sex, money, ourselves, our families. It promises us life, even good things. But do not trust in it for deliverance. They are not your savior. Instead, cry out to the only one who can deliver. Cry out what we sung earlier to the Lord Jesus. Let me hide myself in thee. And do this today. Well, the other response to God's judgment is very simple. We can call it a new kind of R&R. Responding in the way God calls us to and resting in his provision. Look at chapter 7, verse 6. Moses and Aaron, the boys, go up to Pharaoh. Do they go with their own agenda? No, from the outset, this is how they're described. It says, they did just as the Lord commanded. Responding how he wants us to. Then chapter 12. See the Israelites before the final plague. You know, in their minds, you might think, you know, the previous nine didn't work. We're still here. We're still in Egypt. No better position. And the only thing they could demand from God was justice. But like us all, if they demand justice, they will end up just like the Egyptians. But in mercy, God provided. He provided a substitute for them. And they rested in it. We don't have to think very hard, friends. There's no way a lamb could be traded for a human life. So this must point to a greater substitute. That as the Passover lamb was slain, so Jesus was slain. And we rest in him knowing that it should have been us. So to those who are responding how God has called us to and in resting in the provision of his son, do not forget that provision. We can add another R. Remember it. Remember it. God gave the Israelites two feasts during the Passover event, the Feast of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, leaven representing what they left behind. And these feasts were ongoing. They were regular, built-in reminders, regular, built-in teaching moments for their children. So parents, don't waste the why questions you get at church or about God. They're expected. The Passover, it became a part of the identity of the Israelites. It was a living reality, even for future generations. And so, our Passover event Jesus Christ slain for sinners becomes a living reality central to our identity 
Jesus died in the past but is risen and still mighty to save. So we remember his blood shed for us. So we remember his body broken for us every day. We remember it among God's people. And we remember it in the Lord's Supper, the new Passover meal, which we do in part, as we always say, in remembrance of him. Last thing, brothers and sisters, don't just remember Jesus' death. Tell people about Jesus' death. Follow the pattern of the Apostle Paul in Colossians 1, where he talks about warning and teaching. Don't fall victim to our culture's skill of turning away any conversation that has a remote chance of being spiritual. Our culture is well-versed in how to do that. We know the truth of God's judgment. The cross is proof of it. So we must warn of it. Because we would be condemned ourselves. If the Surgeon General teaches us anything, it's that warnings aren't cruel if they are true. In fact, it's cruel not to warn if there is real danger. As we warn of God's judgment, we tell of his glorious provision, of which we have joyously received. We see this here even during the plagues, beginning of chapter 10. God said that he sent the plagues so that the Israelites would tell their children and their grandchildren. They were to tell of the freedom God had won for them, delivering them from his judgment. We are to tell the greater freedom God has won for us through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that your ways are higher than our ways. We thank you that you are purer than us. We thank you that you are infinitely wise and uncompromisingly just. Lord, give us understanding of the nature of your judgment, that it is good, and give us humility as we look at your judgment, that in light of your holiness, we stand condemned. But God, anchor us in the hope we have in Christ, that he is our Passover lamb who bore the judgment from you that we deserved. Help us to rest in him and help us to point others to him. We pray in his name. Amen.